Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and Neil Morrison with you this week. And this is going to be a special Paddock Pass podcast where we look at Freddie Spencer. And Neil, in the midst of all this COVID-19 situation around the world, we've got our lockdown in place in Catalonia and Ireland for me and you and for all of our listeners all around the world. And uh, we decided instead of COVID-19, we'll talk about Fast 19. We've got Freddie Spencer this week. We've got a couple of interviews with him. And uh, obviously, you know, Freddie Spencer, an absolute legend of Grand Prix racing and uh, what's your initial thoughts on Freddie before we get uh, diving into this into this topic? Yep um, well I would say that uh, Freddie Spencer is probably up there with the all-time greats in terms of uh, the impact the immediate impact that he had on the sport um, certainly one of the biggest talents I think we've ever seen um, certainly comparable to someone like Casey Stoner or Mark Marquez maybe even more than that um, a guy that seemed to have the absolute world at his feet at the age of 23 years old by that stage he had already won three world championships he had done something that no one had ever done in history prior to that which was win the 250cc and 500cc world championships in the same year um, and I mean he had just kind of rewrote the record books um, on his way to, to kind of those achievements and people were sort of thinking like well, this is a guy that's going to surpass Agostini um, and kind of rewrite all of the all-time records that uh, Agostini posted but um, I guess you have to consider the kind of decline of Freddie Spencer's career as much as uh, as his way up to the uh, the pinnacle of the sport and uh, you know there was a, a pretty dire sort of end to his uh, his racing career but um but you know I think today we're going to focus pretty much on the uh, on the positives and um well yeah you would have to consider him one of the greats of the sport even though um his stay uh, in the top class was uh, relatively short compared to some of the people that he holds kind of company with on the all-time list yeah, and you mentioned it there, Neil, about rewriting the record books. He was, of course, the man that became the youngest ever world champion when he won his first world championship, won a lot of Grand Prix in a very short space of time. But he was that really bright star that shines twice as bright but lives half as long because his career really is just, in a nutshell, five years. His first Grand Prix was 1980 at Spa, picked up his first win a couple of years later, and his last win was only five years after his debut. He really did condense it all into a very short period of time. Obviously, we're going to get to it, but the double championships in 85, where he doubled up in 250 and 500s, feats that we've never seen since, and we never are going to see again. But they really were just that uh, moment of Freddie's career that suddenly maybe the exertion of having to do those feats just became too much for him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, no one really realized at the time during 1985 just um, how much that took out of him. Um, and I know there were um, quite a few um, physical issues that really hampered him in the years after that. Um, 86, you know, he had to retire from the first race of the year at Harama when he had a m massive, massive lead. Looked like he was on course to, to repeat his feats from the previous year. Had to re retire with um, an issue with his wrist and that never really went away. And then there were... I guess you could say issues with motivation and um, yeah, preparation. And he made a couple of comebacks, which really did not end well at all. Um, not uh, least when he came back in 89, I think it was. And uh, by that stage, I think everyone was just sort of saying, oh, Freddie, I kind of wish you had stayed away. But, um, but you know, um, I think anyone that saw him ride will, uh, will choose to remember those kind of years between 82 when he made his, uh, his full-time World Championship debut um, upon uh, Honda's NS500 uh, right the way through to 85 because, I mean, in terms of impact, those four seasons were just uh, almost unprecedented. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Unparalleled throughout those four years, really, to any other era we saw. And the biggest comparison we always had between Mark Marquez in the early stages of his Premier Class career was always back to Freddie Spencer. And then obviously, when Casey Stoner retired, the obvious comparison was Freddie Spencer. I found it interesting lately because I'm, I'm writing something about, you know, who the majority of people inside the paddock view as being one of their top 10 riders of all time. Freddie's a name that's constantly inside the top 10 lists from everyone I've received so far. And for some people, he's as high as third or fourth. For other people, just didn't have the longevity. But he's there for everyone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can kind of, you can see why, because now, nowadays with the, the Grand Prix structure in place, 
Um, it's quite normal to see guys come into the MotoGP class at 20 years, 21 years old, having amassed a whole load of uh, Grand Prix experience in the junior categories. But for Freddie to do that in 1982 as a 20-year-old to come in and in his first full season win, um, uh, you know, win at uh, Spa-Francorchamps, win two races actually in that first year. Um, even the year before that, even before he had reached his 20s, he was uh, riding Honda's ill uh, handling and basically like doomed NR500, the four-stroke, which uh, really just never really went anywhere and had some horrific embarrassments throughout its time. And Freddie's, uh, I think, sole uh, appearance on that machine, he was as high as fifth at the British Grand Prix at Silverstone in 1981. So, um, you know, this was a kid who just came from America with massive reputation and came on in his first year and was battling the likes of Kenny Roberts, Barry Sheen, Franco and Cheney, Graham Crosby, proper experienced riders. And in case of Kenny Roberts and um, in the case of uh, Kenny Roberts, I mean, you know, one of the greatest racers ever. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of meteoric um well, that, that sort of uh, impact that he had on the championship. I mean, you you have to go back to to, to maybe like Heelwood um, to, to have someone that young come on and make such an impact um, at the absolute elite level of the sport. Yeah, and you mentioned there, Neil, as well, Kenny Roberts. And obviously, we, we always saw for all American riders, that was the target. You wanted to be able to show what you could do compared to the riders that were coming before you. For Freddie, it was... Kenny. Kenny had gone over, he had been a world champion, he was the man to beat and, uh, and we'll listen in, in a couple of moments just to an interview I did with Freddie at the Qatari Grand Prix only a couple of weeks ago and that was actually just to talk about his time racing in America coming through the ranks, racing at Daytona against Kenny and what it was meant for him to be able to beat someone like Roberts obviously whenever he came across to Europe for one of the first times that European fans saw him was the transatlantic trophy meets at Brands Hatch. It was Roberts and Sheen were the big stars, but it was Freddie that went out and won that race. And it was Freddie that was able to use that really to show people who he was. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that in itself is evidence that uh, he was able to show up at a, at a race like that first time ever uh, at Brands Hatch. And uh, yeah, he wiped the floor with, with Sheen, with Roberts. Um, a lot of British fans we're looking at the program thinking who the hell is this young uh this young kid on a basically an unstickered bike out there uh kicking everyone's ass and doing things with the motorcycle that you know even in kenny roberts time uh, seemed to be completely alien um to the motorcycle racing world um and yeah i mean for, that was just that was just the start and he kind of talks a little bit about this in his book which is is really good definitely worth uh, checking out and reading um but, uh, you know, that was the moment which really confirmed to him that, yeah, okay, I belong. Yeah, Neil, you said there he was doing things that other people weren't doing at that stage. Obviously, when Kenny Roberts came across to Europe, he was the first rider that an awful lot of people saw get their knee down, change how they sat on a bike, change how they rode a bike, use the rear end to slide it, use the rear end to turn it. Freddie obviously came through the dirt uh, track background, but one of the things he was special at was being able to push the front end as well. And uh, in his book, he talks a lot about being able to every time it was raining he was going out in his bike and just basically trying to crash the front end and save it and that was one of the big things for him to come across to europe and be able to adapt his writing style to yeah yeah for sure yeah um i mean you could say there are some parallels with him and mark marquez other than breaking lots of records for the youngest rider to win a race youngest rider to win a premier class championship um also the, the their kind of styles and approaches like quite similar as well freddie on the front end would push it remorselessly, just mercilessly, um, and had a, a kind of supernatural feel for what the front tire was going to do. He also had a, a brilliant, brilliant understanding of track conditions and how they would change, how to adapt himself, how to adapt his position on the bike uh, with those changes. And that just came about from countless, countless hours of running uh, in the kind of area around his house whenever he was younger. And he was competing basically from the age of four years old, just constantly out on dirt track ovals. And uh, yeah, I mean, that really stood him in good stead for um, for his Premier Class career because it was like a real customary Spencer thing to uh, get out of the blocks like a rocket and uh, be able to build up a pretty solid lead from the first lap and then just control the race from there. And, um, you know, in that respect, 
in that respect, um, yeah, it was uh, he was he was unbeatable when he was at uh, when he was at the height of his powers. Yeah, and you mentioned the parallel to Mark Marquez. That's a parallel to Casey Stoner as well, isn't it? Where you've just got that ability to go straight out there, set the pace, set the limit, and, and understand the limit straight away. That was really what was special about Freddie whenever he was in those early stages of his racing career. Yeah, yeah. Another thing that uh, people that uh, worked with him noticed that he did really well on the bike was uh, his uh, use of the rear brake um, and using that almost as like an early kind of traction control system on the exit of corners being able to to feather it lightly to try and um, limit the amount of wheelie that the bike did um, so like Kenny Roberts before him Freddie was doing things on the motorcycle that were just revolutionary um, and really um, you know caused I think the greatest guys that he was sharing a grid with to uh, take a step back and say Wow. And uh, we're going to get the chance now just to listen to what Freddie had to say about those early stages of his career. Obviously, for, for me and for you, Neil, one of the best things that we get the opportunity to do is to be able to sit down with people that you've read their book, you've looked at their videos all the way through whenever you were a kid, or people that you've read about whenever you were younger, and to be able then to ask them about some of the key moments of their career is always fun. For me, racing history is always really 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 cool to look into and i wanted to talk to freddie an awful lot about daytona and the daytona 200 obviously that race was supposed to happen only a couple of weeks ago but i wanted to ask freddie about the 200 back in 1984 because that was his last chance to race against kenny roberts that was the last chance he was going to have to win the 200 by beating kenny and it was the big one for Freddie. He said that this was a time where there was no tomorrow this was the chance for him to be able to prove to everyone how good he was at Daytona to prove to everyone he could beat Kenny again in a straight up fight and to get the job done in a very different setting to a Grand Prix. This was a 200 mile race. You had to be able to manage the machine. You had to have pit stops. You had to be a lot more adaptable. And uh, for Freddie, that's what was fun about the 200 and this race in particular, that was the big one for him. So talk to Freddie about just growing up as a kid, his first times racing at Daytona, racing in the 250 Grand Prix National Championship as a kid, even how he had to lie about his age to get his first start at Daytona, and uh, then all the way through to that 84 race. So we'll uh, cut to the interview with Freddie, and when we come back from that, we'll talk a lot more about his Grand Prix career. Obviously, you remember whenever it was like the big event. Absolutely. So you'll have plenty of content, Richard, you <laughs> because the Daytona 200 for me was the shining star of what I wanted to race in one day. I first went there when I was like eight years old with my dad and my brother. My brother, most people don't know this, but he raced at Daytona in the 250 class. And in those days, this would have been late 60s, early 70s, very early 70s, like 70, 71. Um, they would have so many entries. There'd be three classes of, of 250s, like novice, junior, and expert, like in the dirt tracking. And, uh, and then, of course, you had the 200. And in the 200, there would be um, Triumphs and BSAs and Nortons and things. And, and my earliest memory about going there, besides my brother there, was my dad and I on Monday morning, because it was speed week then, Monday to Sunday, is I couldn't wait to get under the tunnel and roll down the window, and I could hear all the different bikes, so I could pick out the Nortons, and like John Williams and Dick Mann on the BSA, and and the Harleys of Cal Rayburn and Mert Wall and, Rod, and Mark Brailsford, you know, Roger Riemann. Uh, and then, and then the two strokes. I remember in the two strokes, we've been seventy-two. The two, the three TZ three fifties. But then they Suzuki and Kawasaki with their one the four cylinder or three cylinder seven fifty water cool bikes, and like the Kawasaki's, you know, the seven fifties. Talk about Daytona. Um, and and it was just this amazing blend of of sounds of the four strokes and the two strokes, you know, and, and, uh, and I remember that I couldn't wait to someday race there. So I got my, my, my chance. Um, I talk about this, in my book about, um, seeing Ken Anderson in a cycle news and, and he was riding to 125 and it was like, this would have been, I was 11. And then in the fall of, of, 
That would have been right June, June when I was 11, so it would have been 72. And in the fall, Yamaha America brought in the TA125, and there was one race at a track in Green Valley, and I rode it, and then Dad signed me up to race in the Wednesday Amateur Day Daytona. And it wasn't on the banking. We used to run the infield backwards. We used to um, just come out on like the pit, uh, the front little straightaway or the the bottom, the apron of the big oval, and then come back into the infield. And it was like a mile or so. And so that was my first big road race. And that would have been when I was 12. It was supposed to be 16. But um, so you know those. So you went full flat track on it and just laid about everything. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and um, so I, I was leading the race to the very end. Bike seized up. I was so small that the only way I could grab the clutch was I had to let go of the left bar to grab the clutch. I couldn't get there in time. High sighted, and it was in the horseshoe. And um, my mom was, was that oh, your first big crash? Yeah, oh, yeah, that was my first big crash. I remember it. My mom has a picture I got in the home of me in the ambulance, sitting up in the very back of the, the ambulances were station wagons back in those days. And I'm sitting there waving to my mom because she's down in that corner. And she was there in 73. And she was there the last year I crashed there in, in that corner in 87. She goes, I've never sitting in that corner again. <laughs> what about the... Uh, the atmosphere whenever you were a kid and you yeah. went because was Daytona still did it still look similar to it does now with the huge grandstands yes and- yeah not quite as much but see in those days on Monday you know when you'd come under the pit they'd already be cars you know and people uh, in those days they, they could you know put their motor homes and things and um, you so know the infield's already full yeah already full you know it was a full like I said full week and and in those days um the race was the most important thing. It was just a few years later. It was always, you always had the crowd down at the beach. And, um, you know, but you, but it, it flipped, you know, it, 20 years later, 30 years later, there were three or 400,000 people there during Speed Week, but only maybe 30,000 would go to the race. You know, half of them probably didn't even know there was a race going on. Uh, but in those days, in the 70s, um, you know, and I raced amateur still one every year. Then, of course, 78, I started as a professional, 16, and won, won my first race there in 78. 79, got second, raced my first superbike race there. It's kind of a funny story in 78 because my brother had a Suzuki dealership in Denton, Texas, and... So the mechanic that worked in his dealership and my brother, those two, uh, built this GSX-R750 for me to go down and race at Daytona, superbike race, right? And they brought this thing down there, street bike that they just, anyway, it wobbled so bad that when I would go down and turn, it would start wobbling. I'd come out of NASCAR 4 and, then it would kind of settle down. I go through the trial, and then it wobbled down in turn one. The journalists in those days could kind of get up and get over the, the arm code, kind of be on the side of the track in those days and take photos. Well, they would run. They'd see me coming, and they'd run and jump over the fence. So I came in. I'd come in and complain about the bike and the mechanic and my brother, two peas in a pod, I'd call them, would, oh, you know, I said, well, you guys ride the bike then. The mechanic was Doug Poland. <laughs> First race Doug ever went to, just talking. If you know Doug, he talks, and him and my brother together were a team. You know, it's a wonder I survived it. But um, but that that's my Doug Poland story. He was a mechanic in my brother's dealership. Was he at least a decent spanner man? Uh, well, Doug has an opinion about it. You know, Doug's Doug, and he makes me laugh. But And my brother and him were so similar. You know, I'd come in, complain, they'd argue, and nothing ever changed on the bike. Nothing ever fixed, but got fixed, but wasn't a whole lot to work with. But anyway, it was, that was my first superbike race. So Daytona, for me, you know, and I, and I bring up those times of seeing 
the big guys on a rotor and, and my, that inspiration was so ingrained in my mind. I want to race here. And then of course my first national road race, my first professional win, my first superbike race were all at Daytona and it was all. And so that place gave so many of us one, not only inspiration Americans, but even, even outside of America, Giacomo will tell you his, one of his great memories is, is winning the 200, you know, uh, in 74 and I remember watching him go around and 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 him and I've talked about it many times that you know it was the first time I saw I go and, and obviously in person and you're on a ceremony and stuff you know and so it, it was a, a true international event it was so unique American because of being a an oval you know even though of course the oval mons in places that came before but it was it was that bigger than life place that um, that was unique to American American racing and and uh, and it was a simple racetrack, but it was it was very technical and um, and so I I watched the you know whether it was Aga or of course Kenny you know watching Kenny there I of course had seen Kenny at the Astrodome which was near in Houston flat tracking so. But watching Kenny Road Race was there. And then one day, you know, I was, maybe I raced against him, of course. Thought it was going to be 79, but he had gotten hurt at Sugo in testing in January. So Skip Askin filled in for him. And Skip and I had a great battle in the 250 race. My first year as professional, 79 when I was 17. Well, what about yeah. that transition then from the first race you did there, 11 years old, to your first race on the Oval, right. to then that? first superbike race like obviously as you move up through yes you know you're getting more experience of that course. Other, but just that transition from the small track to the big track and then to the big bike yeah obviously racing oh just on the infield um even though i would have thought you know racing well i could race in the banking now and would have had no business doing that i mean it's it's such a challenge and then all everything in between, all the club racing and the in between, because when I did that race in, in 73 there when I was 12, that was literally the national championship one race because there was really no organized amateur club race in the United States. There wouldn't have been, maybe Kenny, of course, and Baker and the ones that were older and already professional racers and then got to come. But as far as my generation, Randy Momolos, myself, Eddie, that came up through club racing and got experience in the national level. It was that transition of, uh, during that period that allowed me to be prepared when I was 16 to be able to race, uh, ride on the banking and, and win. Uh, because up until before that real growth in club racing in the mid 70s, everybody was late 20s, mid 20s. You know, most people like Kenny, they road race because it was part of the Grand National Championship. And then they they started getting experience by coming over here. And people, like I said, like Steve Baker, Cal Rayburn. If Cal had gotten killed, he would have been over here racing. Um, but so there was that, that transition that didn't make that first time I raced in the banking as dramatic as it would have been because I'd already raced at Texas World Speedway. As an amateur, I already raced at Charlotte Motor Speedway, Talladega, and um, but still, you know, it was it was an amazing feeling the first time I went around that first year in '78 because of State Talladega, you know, and uh, and again because I paid attention to everything, I'm, I was ready for it, you know. Um, was it still like the same? track layout as it is now like big yeah. 32 degrees absolutely and, yeah 33 degree banking um you, you can't walk up it you know i mean it's you i mean you crawl up and you can sit but i mean it's it's very steep and um but you know once, once i again once i raced on it and, and I, I took to it not everybody does a good job at Daytona because it seems simple. It's a very basic layout, but it's very technical. And and, and because of tire wear issues, which um, are, was critical, especially in that time, the first year I raced the 280 
we we'd have one tire. You didn't change tires. So the Goodyear that we ran was was so hard that you could run the two hundred mile, and I probably could have used to get back to Shreveport, you know. Um, and so it spun it spun a lot. And so you're you know coming out of the infield onto NASCAR one, uh, coming out of the chicane were the criticals, you know, points. Uh, so many different lines going on in turn one. Kenny and I, you know, going through the trial, especially from from eighty through eighty five. My my top speed increased 25 miles an hour. I mean, it, a lot. You know, we're close to 190 um, on a 500 there in 85. And so, you know, you come to that trial and get down onto the apron, and it's tricky, you know, the speed that you're, you're coming through there with the wall right here. Um, so it's, you know, in that in all those areas, it was certainly unique, and, and then, you know, to be involved with the American Honda Superbike Program in 80, our first race was the 1980 Daytona Superbike Race. We almost won Graham Crosby and I battled the whole race. We're going to this year have our 40th anniversary of that team at Indy. Motor America is making a big event called the Heritage Weekend. Um, so that's going to be pretty cool. Yeah, because I was going to say, like, something like Daytona and Indy are two of those big iconic yes, American ovals. Exactly. And like they're, for, they're cathedrals. Yeah. I mean, they really are what we're of our sport. I mean, you walk down Gasoline Alley or you walk down, you know, into Victory Lane at Daytona. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's everything in what we do, you know. I mean, um, so, you know, day, again, Daytona has that, feeling and they've done a great job of maintaining that you know maintaining that that um, pageantry of what it is and just the you know the sense of what it is and they you know keep some things the same you know and then obviously like when you go to the 200 now it's uh, it's so insignificant compared to what it used to be like I remember I went in 2012 and I'd been there for the 500 a couple of weeks earlier the whole grandstands full for even the truck race on the Friday night great atmosphere you go during bike week and everyone's down the beach everyone's in town and you think oh this is great like the place is absolutely filled with bikers bike fans well you think that they're bike fans things like that but they're not they're just people that have a street bike and have no interest in going to track most of them wouldn't even know there was a race you know if you look back on footage, the, the last years of real huge crowds would have been, well, Kenny and I was still racing there, and there's, you know, the two of them are still the Grand Prix bikes, would have been, you know, 83, 84, you know. Um, and in, in the grandstands would have still been, you know, pretty, pretty good. Um, probably the last huge crowd would have been 80, you know, maybe. Um, it just changed a little bit, but what was it like whenever there was that massive crowd well, and, and the buzz from it? Yeah, oh well, you know, again because there, there, there was only like one grandstand in the infield at that stage, wasn't there? Yeah, and then yeah. everyone was pretty much on the start finish track. Yeah, everyone would have been on the start finish track and and around the infield. You know, in those days, it was completely full of cars up against the fence around the infield, standing on their motorhomes, and so. You know, I mean, I were, you know, you see him, and I, because I'd see him standing up, you know, especially in those years between 80, 80, 80 and 84. There's the Kenny and I battling, you know, in, in 80, we were both on 750s. I qualified, qualified pole, I was second. 81, he didn't, he didn't race, uh, he didn't race there. He was hurt again. Um, but 82, 83, 84, it was him and I. And so, um, what was that like? Well, it was the '84 race would have been the one that was really important. Kenny had our similarities at Daytona because he was leading there his first year, '72, '73, '74, the battle '74 with him and Ago. But every year something happened. He went to '78 that he finally won the race. And then 79, he was hurt. 80, he broke. Because him and I were battling 80. Um, and then he won it two more times. You know, he won it 83, 84. 
So we got to 84, he'd run it twice. I'd let it every year. 80, 81, 82, 83. Uh, broke, broke. I had the race one and eight. And Poland was only on your bike once for those times. Yeah, that was, I was 78. <laughs> yeah, no, it was her, but I, you know, 80. First year, 200 reserve, 750. And then in 81, it wasn't her. I was American Honda. And then 82 was the first, you know, the, the uh, Honda FWS. And then, of course, 83, we started running the NS500. 84, the V4. And so 84 was the one. It was the last year of the original circuit. I wanted pole and wanted to win the 200 because I knew it was Kenny's last 200. This was it. There was no tomorrow doing this. I beat him for the World Championship 83, and so everybody was looking for that battle. Well, plan was I, I broke the two-minute barrier. First time ever anybody had ever run under two minutes, got pole, got that. Then in the race, the plan was because, you know, these 500s are fragile. So making them last 200 miles is not easy. That's the first challenge. Second challenge is, is that since 82, and my my almost one there, everybody we were changing tires, uh, rears, each, not front, just rears, uh, in each fuel stop. So um, if everything worked out as I thought, then... The last two laps, before I came in for the first field stop, was my push. I was going to push. If I could get about a second, second and a half, figured we would get them maybe about eight tenths in the field, in the pit stop. We had it timed. We were watching them. And we, we were maybe about eight tenths quicker. And then the outlap. And um, he's on Don Lops on Mitchell. My... I figured I, I had him about six tenths on the outlap, maybe. Again, it all worked out well. And it was like clockwork. I mean, I got about a second, came in, and then whatever it was, I, it was probably a little over a half second of the game, maybe. Got out, and I had him 2.2 seconds. And I thought, okay, if I could maintain that, the pace, we were having a little fuel issues. It's another thing. Fuel. And so, you know, you control that by the throttle out the banking, or all onto the banking in NASCAR 1 and now the chicane. Again, all working well. With about four laps to go before the second fuel stop, I started hearing the change in the engine pitch. This was the 84 bike with the gas tank on the bottom. And, I mean, Kenny's pushing, and he's starting to close a little bit because he knew, you know, and I'm sure his was, obviously, was his big push was going to come going into the second field stop. Probably would have evened out. But within about a lap or two, it changed through a little bit, but not too much. And I landed in the second field stop, and and then they had a little bit of a problem. And so I came out and had almost three-second lead. Now we're good. Got about three laps into that last leg, and then all of a sudden, the pitch and engine changed completely. And what had happened was the center pipe split. It took about another three or four laps for it to burn a hole through that fake gas tank. <laughs> I was getting the gas fumes. Anyway, so now Kenny called me, and and, uh, and so he he took the lead, and, and uh, I finished, and then finished second. They made take second. But, that's what made Daytona unique. It's the only race like it. And, you know, Kenny and I have been sprint racers, but being able to, what well, was a challenge, and this is what why I like the 200, and, and it's what's so special is the 82 race was the greatest race I never won. I finished second. But what I had to do on the bike to get it, that big V4 1000, uh, and I tell the story in detail in my book, but it taught me the throttle, not taught me, it made me utilize all my skills in throttle control, angle and trajectory and tire management, and fuel conservation, all these things. And that's what is going to make Daytona special. So for something like that, that it teaches you, 
and then obviously before that and up until you know the mid 80s or whatever like with the GNC it was always about the all-rounder it was always about being able to win yes. on everything and then you bring in something like 200 like it gave a young rider huge ground and if you were doing a, like a flat track season and you were doing this and then some other short circuit races like your your season was full but it was full of variety as well yes yes which is then if you take that and, and say did that benefit me once I got here we use everything it's all about managing it's all about adjusting it's all about um, tire management it's about being able to adapt your riding ability to the environment, but also being able to adapt, especially in those days, riding the 500, that was rapidly changing and developing tires. And you know, you start season off in one tire characteristics, and halfway through, it's completely different. And so, you know, all of those things and all of those skills require. Um, maneuverability adjustment and, and mindset you know and, and again that's what I loved about Daytona that it required all those skills in 200 miles you know and then obviously when you look at it now like I, I said I went in 2012 that was I think the year Lena Myers won a super sport race yeah. so at that stage that was a big story of course but now there's nothing now like when you look at like what's happening with Moto America and different things and they are clearly trying an awful lot of different things obviously Gerloff gets into World Superbikes this year well, Joe here this well, weekend I tell you in Bell Downs I mean, you know Joe doing well he's going to do more you know how it works he's going to do more for uh, uh, inspiring you know riders see if that is possible you know which is great, and it's what we need. I mean, there's no better way to motivate young riders in your ass than to see, you know, obviously Joe doing a great job. I was doing here yesterday, to the, you know, Friday to the, yesterday, today, and see how, what happens in the race. Do you remember what it felt like when you had your first pole and your first podium and your first win? Of course. And then, like, the reaction back home as of well? Of course, which would have been... My, my first pole would have been in, in Spain, but um, in May of 82, and then my first win, it was July 4th of 82. And Spain's not a bad day for us, not bad. <laughs> With the planets this year, it's going to be at the Bikers Classic, it's actually July 4th. So um, one of the collectors that I ride for, he's got a, uh, he's got an actually an 84 bike that's painted. It's got Comstore wheels, he's putting 40 on it. And plus, I'm all right. So it'll be 30, 38 years ago of July 4th. I'm uh, going to ride the bike around Spa, which is my favorite place. But, but of course, I don't know. And, you know, the, um, you know, in those days, obviously, there wasn't the shock of American because, you know, Kenny was already, you know, he was world champion in 7980. Randy had come over and won his first win. Um, the second American won a five-man race. Well, Pat Hennon was actually the first, but um, and then Kenny, obviously, first world champion. But Randy won his first race in, in Belgium, two and eighty. And then when you look at that era, then you're you came through right in the middle of that sustained period of American success. Yeah. And then you look at it now, like do you see that? Maybe right now in the U.S. in particular, that people are sort of going down the route of like supercross, motocross, so well, big, yeah. and the yeah. talent is going yeah. towards that because that's where the money is. That is what has happened since the decline of American, you know, the the AMA National Ch- Superbike Championship Series and the basic pullout support of the manufacturers, which happened oh eight oh nine in that financial crisis and when. Uh, DMG took over uh, the championship, which, you know, we tried to make it more like NASCAR, but we're not NASCAR, you know. The AMA racing specifically, especially the super bike in those days, is used for promoting, you know, the, the race bikes, and it's part of the development. 
Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Again, this is a Freddie Spencer special. So Steve English and Neil Morrison. And Neil, we've already said it, but it's worth saying it again. Obviously, this is a time where it's important to have a good distraction from everything that's going on in the world at the moment with the coronavirus. And uh, we hope that all of the followers of the Paddock Pass podcast are able to get something that's able to just take away an hour from them and uh, give them a nice distraction. And uh, there's no better distraction than to talk about one of the best Grand Prix riders of all time, Freddie Spencer. We've listened to Freddie talk there about his time coming through the ranks in America, racing at Daytona against Kenny Roberts. Obviously, by the stage that uh, he was racing Kenny in that 84 race, he was already a world champion. He was already a Grand Prix superstar. But let's talk a little bit about those early years of his Grand Prix career. Neil, you mentioned it earlier on. Freddie had come across, had a couple of starts. I think it was on a Yamaha in 1980. He did one race. And then you mentioned as well the British Grand Prix in 81. But 1982, that was the start of it for Freddie, Freddie in the uh, Grand Prix Championship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, he had been signed up uh, to Honda, I think, in 1980. And uh, Honda were so desperate to, to kind of get hold of his services that they actually allowed him to go to Europe and race in Belgium. Uh, aboard a Yamaha machine. So even though he was contracted as a Honda rider and he made his Grand Prix debut on the Yamaha, that's just how, how highly Honda valued him because of uh, what he was able to do in the uh, the kind of national championship there. Um, and then coming across in uh, 82, he had obviously had that, uh, that run out at uh, the British Grand Prix in 81 aboard Honda's four-stroke. And then Honda decided, okay, you know, they'd uh, basically uh, tried so hard to get a four-stroke to work in the 500cc class um, in the early 80s, and they realised, okay, you know what, this this isn't work, this isn't working, and uh, they had to go to the drawing board and, and design a completely new motorcycle. And uh, yeah, the NS 500 was um, three cylinder machine, um, lighter, a um, little less powerful than the uh, the Yamaha, which was uh, basically the well one of the bikes to beat on the grid at that time. Also, the um, the, the Suzuki 500 as well. But um, the fact that it was a little lighter, more nimble, um, Freddie was able to really use that to his advantage. Um, and um, yeah, straight out off the blocks, he was um, he was a real force to be reckoned with. He was up there fighting with Sheen and with uh, Kenny Roberts in Argentina in 1982, the first race of that season. Um, and by the sixth race of the year, when he went to Spa uh, on the 4th of July, he uh, yeah he won his first race and at uh, 20 years old became the youngest in history to have uh, to have won a 500 cc race um, and uh, picked up another race win by the end of the year at Misano and um, you know against a really competitive strong field in 1982 um, proved that he belonged and uh, that was the year obviously Neil where Franco and Cini won the world championship but Freddie had I think five retirements through that year and missed out by 30 odd points. So really, it did show just how strong a season he had, because pretty much every race he finished, he was on the podium. He was always at the front, but just that bike wasn't quite reliable enough. And you spoke to Freddie about that 82 season and the early development path of the NS500 triple as well, didn't you? I did indeed, Steve, yeah. And I think now is pretty much a good time to listen to what Freddie had to say about that time. The, the original three-cylinder, uh, the whole purpose of that bike when Honda designed it was for it to be narrow, lighter than the four cylinders. And it was there it's the, even more of the technical aspects. They it was a reed valve engine. Um, basically the other bikes were rotary valve, for example, the Suzuki and the, the even the Yamaha. And uh, they'd gotten away from reed valves because of the limitations and the RPMs that they could do it. And so Again, Honda being Honda specifically, when they when they built this first two-stroke, was to try to do something unique, and uh, so they had tried with the the NR500, the oval piston uh, four-stroke. That didn't go that well. It's an amazing technological feat, though. So when they built this two-stroke, um, immediately there was some issues with vibration and things because of the engine layout, and they they. They, they were able to solve those problems with uh, counterbalance balancing shafts and things. And um, we won the championship the second year. Um, it wasn't easy because, as you said, especially with the Yamaha, the V4 in the second season of it, because uh, the bike was built in 82, Kenny raced it in a few races, and, uh, and then it was good for the second season. 
we knew, they knew, that there was going to be a limitation on the development of the three-cylinder. And uh, so they had started on the four-cylinder pretty early in the season of 83. It was ready to test in September of 84, tested at Suzuka. But you mean... A it was the upside-down gas tank one. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. The '84 machine. Yeah, and the the exciting thing about that time was the fact of all the innovation that was happening. When it was, I'll give you a perfect example, just an overview. Between '82, when I won the Spa, I won the Belgian Grand Prix at Spa. I qualified at two minutes forty. Jack Mendelberg was on the pole at two thirty nine, mid two thirty nines. In the race, I did two thirty seven. Won the race, Honda's first Grand Prix victory since the yeah, 60s. Fourth of July. Yeah, July 4th, perfect, that's right. <laughs> um, and my my first victory, I was at that time the youngest race winner until Mark, yeah. I was named 13. And so, but anyway, when I won that race, uh, it, was a, it was an amazing day. But just three seasons later, in 85, I won the race again my lap time was almost nine seconds a lap faster between 82 and 85 because we went from bias to radials uh steel tube frame box aluminum frame unit pro length v4 you know all these all this technology and right up tires too yeah yeah radial tires which i did all the initial development work with them and um, so it was. It was this amazing progression of uh, technological development, evolution of chassis design, and power. You know, just absolute power. Because Honda came into the game in '82, HRC. Great stuff there, Neil, with Freddie Spencer talking about those early stages of his full-time Grand Prix career. But Neil, it'd be remiss to talk about Freddie in those early years without talking about probably the most standout moment of his Grand Prix career, it was Sweden in 1983. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, you think of uh, the all-time great battles in the history of the sport. You think of Hillwood and Agostini. You think of um, Rossi and Lorenzo. You think of Rainey and Lawson, Rainey and Schwantz. Um, I mean, I think uh, Lawson and Roberts in 1983, that basically can hold its own among the most dramatic uh, title races that we've ever seen, um, and um, yeah, it was uh, it was it was just fantastic because you had Freddie, who had a year of a full year of experience under his belt, coming into the championship as one of the favourites. Uh, that bike was obviously developed and was in a really good shape by the start of the year, and then you had uh, Kenny Roberts, basically, who had uh, slightly been slightly humbled for two years, not winning. Losing his crown after uh, winning it for three years consecutively between 78 and 80. And uh, Roberts basically was coming back to um, the 500 championship with uh, a fully developed Yamaha bike. They had basically spent 82 working and trying to perfect that machine. Um, in 83, Kenny announced that it was going to be his final year of Grand Prix racing. This was the, this was the chance to basically win that crown back. And um, yeah, I mean, all year... Freddie and Kenny went at it completely. Um, you know, both riders won six six races apiece, pushed each other in ways that I don't think either of them uh, really believed that they could. And uh, they were riding on a kind of level where it was just uh, it was from another world, really. Um, and uh, you know, the rest in the class were almost forgotten about. So uh, it was, uh, yeah, a real title battle for the ages. And it all came down, of course, to uh, to Sweden, the penultimate race of the year. Yeah, Neil, that was a year, obviously, as you said, it really was Freddie versus Kenny. No one else was there. And uh, they split all the wins. Freddie did the winning at the start of the year. Kenny did the chasing and then was able to win from pretty much the second half of the year onwards was all about Roberts. But it did come down to Sweden. It did come down to the last lap. And uh, basically, that was what ended up deciding the championship. They left Sweden and uh, Freddie had a five-point advantage in the championship. But at that stage... It was 15 points for a win, 12 points for second. And it was all but impossible, really, to see Kenny Roberts picking up that world championship. But let's have a listen to what Freddie recalls from uh, that Swedish Grand Prix. I think you can rest assured that uh, Kenny Roberts would see it pretty differently even all these years later. 
Kenny said that I saw, I talk about this in my book, but, but he set it up perfectly because I was quite a bit quicker, but he, had, he was sandbagging me. Started the race, he was as quick as I was, a little bit quicker, and I was barely hanging on. I'm thinking, I'm, this is bad, I'm in trouble. And this race, one race from the end, was important. I knew it was, we knew it was gonna be important because he had closed the gap down, and so I, um, was able to, if I won the race, I could go into Imola and finish second. So with five laps to go, I started showing him a wheel on the right-hander leading on the back straightaway to hopefully get him to tighten up the line. And on the last lap, he was probably thinking I was gonna pass him on the inside. I set up wider, it was a bait corner that actually rolled off in the exit. And so he tightened up his line, he got his worst drive out the corner, I got my best drive. <laughs> And his and, and his rear end came around and he wheeled it. And so it was the only time I got up next to him going down the back straightaway. And this is exactly what happened. As we're going down the back straightaway, at the speed we're going, we actually only peripheral vision because, you know, the closure rate on the corner is so quick. So as we're going along, you see the rider next to you. And if you're going to react to them, it's usually just a whole reaction. They set you set up and that's when you, that keys your set up if you're gonna break at the same point. <laughs> I couldn't get by him, I knew, but if I was up next to him, whatever reason, at the last second, as we're getting ready to break, instead of me looking here, I turned and I looked right at his hand. At that moment, he set up, but he didn't get out of throttle. And, <laughs> and we call that yeah. doing a head fake in yeah. basketball. Yeah. You know, so, <laughs> so he didn't, and I didn't either. And, so we get in way deeper than we had ever than we had previously, and there's photos. And Kenny was mad, but, but well, by thirty years, he was mad that day. And, and as, as I said in my book, for the next twenty nine years. Now it was Freddie Spencer in pretty much photographic detail remembering something that happened uh, over 35 years ago. Really impressive stuff from Freddie and Neil. That's one of the things that you always see with these top riders. And I'm sure that over the years when you've been in the paddock more and more and you talk to riders more and more, you realize that the really top guys can remember the smallest of details. It's one of the things that nowadays you look at Rossi's career what gives him that longevity? It's the fact that he can think about things that worked 10 years ago, 15 years ago for him and recall them and use them for his advantage again. And, and Freddie able to recall something that happened all those years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's impressive stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, it's um, I mean, that was the I guess one of the most pivotal moments of his career. Um, and speaking to Freddie or listening to some of his interviews, reading his book, you do um, understand that he does have this kind of forensic uh, memory um, for setup details, what he might have been testing at a particular race weekend, um, how he outsiked uh, a particular rival on which occasion. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you probably just heard there. I mean, um, obviously there's no uh, video footage of that race, sadly. And uh, one of the most epic races and duels um, that the sport's ever seen. And uh, there's no there's no evidence of it. We've only got a photo of basically both of them running into that uh, final hairpin and then uh, coming out the other side, both on the grass. Um, so uh, yeah, so listening to Freddie speak about it is, is great, you know. And um, yeah, it was just a great, great um a great year, you know, two of the two of the finest riders to come from America, um, putting it all on the line. Um, and I think one of the one of the most interesting details I had, or I, I remember from uh, Freddie's book, was uh, he was talking about Harama that year. It was the fifth race of the season. He said he had never ridden the motorcycle harder than he did that day to win the race. And Roberts was behind him the entire time, um, right on his wheel. But Freddie didn't make a mistake at all. Um, and he said after the race, um, they. He was basically sitting in his motorhome, um, taking it all in. And there was a knock on the door and uh, Kenny came in with like a, a crate of beers and um, sat down and uh, was just asking him really banal questions just about himself. And Freddie was sat, sitting there with his uh, Dr. Pepper trying to think, what, what's, what's Kenny doing here? And Kenny would just be talking about little mundane things of paddock life, travel. And he started like asking a few de details about the race and how did you take this, uh, how did you take this corner? Freddie said, kind of soon realized that uh, Kenny thought, I don't know if I can beat this guy on the track, so I need to try and start trying to work on him 
off the bike and see if I can find any holes in his armor. Um, and it was just this lovely little detail about how, uh, you know, he basically worked Roberts to such a level that uh, all he could think about doing was uh, trying to maybe find holes in it mentally. And um, yeah, indeed, Kenny, uh, after that race in, um, in Sweden, said that the, the greatest mistake of that year, and I think one of the biggest mistakes of his career, was underestimating just how badly Spencer wanted to win. Yeah, that's really interesting stuff, Neil. And uh, I think that's one of the things that, especially when you're at the top, it's sometimes very difficult to see the wood from the trees. And uh, it's difficult to to look at what's coming next. And you see that time and time again. It doesn't matter if it's in racing. It doesn't matter if it's in football. It doesn't matter if it's in golf or tennis, whatever the sport is. It's all about the hunger of someone else. And that's why it's so hard to stay at the top. And indeed, with Freddie we saw just how difficult it was to stay at the top. And obviously, Neil, one of the big things for Freddie was that title, his first championship, you just expected the floodgates to open. But the next year, we didn't see that. We saw a really tough season in 1984 for him. He won a lot of races, but he missed the last four rounds of the year. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, there's some questionable circumstances in which he missed the uh, the final four runs of the year as well. Uh, but things didn't get off to a good start. Obviously, Honda upgraded the NS500 to the NSR500, which is a, so it was a four-cylinder engine, obviously more power. At first was uh, quite unruly, a bit of a beast. Um, I think uh, he was testing um, carbon fiber uh, front wheel rim um, in the first race, and that rim uh, collapsed. Um, when he was practicing in South Africa, so he was on the back foot from uh, from the get-go. Um, still managed to win uh, five races, one, uh, I think that was more than uh, Lawson managed that year, but um, just the inconsistency um, really uh, put paid to his chances. And Neil, even though he was able to win those races, by the time that he stopped racing for the season, he was already 20 points behind Lawson after that win in Belgium, before he missed the last four rounds of the year. So, you know, Eddie had already done the hard yards at that stage of the year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think, you know, any any champion will sort of tell you that uh, whenever they know that um, that there's no real chance of, uh, of winning the championship, then a little bit of intensity just gets lost in terms of preparation. Um, but, um, you know, Freddie used his time away at the end of that year uh, to pretty good effect because it was around then that he started thinking about the following year in 1985 when he was going to do something rather unprecedented. So obviously, Neil, 1985, that's the year that really makes the history of Freddie Spencer. We talked earlier on about coming in and immediately being at the front, but 85 was the year where he won the 250 title and the 500 Grand Prix Championship. Yeah, it was uh, masterful, uh, masterful, really, achievement because um, he didn't just win it, but uh, he you know, won it quite convincingly as well, both championships quite convincingly. He was coming up against a really stern Eddie Lawson test in the, the 500 class, and then Carlos Lovato uh, was doing some quite remarkable things in the 250 championship that year, but Freddie just had a, a kind of iron will um, and, uh, yeah, racked up seven wins in each class, um, three other podiums in the 500cc class. In fact, he only had one race he was he was outside the top two, and that was when he was taken out in pretty horrifically torrential conditions uh, by Christian Saron at Assen. Um, so it was almost a perfect year um, in the, the 500cc class, and just uh, the kind of physical demands um, of having to race two races pretty much back to back. In some cases, he was on the podium um, celebrating victory in the 500cc class and then the 250 grid was basically forming up in front of him um, and he had to run um, down from the podium to, to jump on his 250 bike and just you kind of think of how, how different riding styles would, would be on both machines and how he was able to, to basically in his mind switch from one to the other um, is, is insane, really remarkable um, and uh, you know it was the first time that uh, someone won more than one Grand Prix category in a year since uh, Agostini in '72. Modern era, this this kind of thing just doesn't happen, hasn't happened, um, and hasn't happened really since he's done it. And I can't really see it ha ever happening again, to be honest. So Neil, that 1985 season, a real complete tour de force for uh, 
for Freddie in both classes. And you had the chance to talk to him again in that interview where you actually talked about Magello 1985. Yep, exactly. Yeah, because this was uh, this was how he opened his book with uh, the account of uh, having just won the 500cc race. He's on the podium, stood next to Eddie Lawson, and suddenly he realizes that uh, the 250cc grid is forming in front of his eyes and he has to make his way down from the podium and jump on his bike, make his way straight back out there without even having a chance to dry himself off and dust himself down. So, yeah, take it away, Freddie. That day was the, the ultimate day to be at Mugello in the most harsh conditions, the Italian Grand Prix. Absolutely, as it always is, an amazing, amazing event. And I went through the 500 race, as I stated in the book, and I'm standing there, and they literally, just at the end of National Anthem, they're, they're leaving the cold rich you know and and i popped the champagne i couldn't drink any because i'm racing hey with daddy and he looks at me and goes better you than me yeah, go, go, go. <laughs> exactly right because eddie didn't say much you know yeah. but too when much. he did exactly <laughs> better you than me yeah so that's just about as clear as it gets you know so i gave the champagne yeah enjoy it but uh you could challenge him to do the same yeah yeah okay. so we we you know, went out and, and was able to, to win that both races that day. And that was that was an amazing day. And certainly that would be at my peak of performance. I mean, mm-hmm. what better way you win in the two greatest classes and what you do on the same day. So, you know. Yeah, stressful times that for Friday as he waited to get down onto the grid, Neil. But uh, when you look at his career, obviously there were moments of that sort of high stress and strain. and probably 85 you'd have to say looking back on it just the strain of that the stresses of trying to win both championships that's ultimately what took its toll yeah yeah both physically and mentally i think um you know physically just basically everything he put into that season um and mentally i mean i've heard him speak since where he said that uh when he won both championships kind of just thought okay well what else is there really to do and you know he basically conquered everything before him um, but something just changed after that season where we never we never saw the best of him ever again after that, after 85. And uh, there were moments, there were flashes of uh, the old Freddie, certainly at the start of 86, when uh, he basically had missed a lot of winter testing because of injury, showed up and just took off, amassed a massive lead um, at the start in the first race of 86. But then I uh, had to retire because he said his, uh, his arm had gone numb. He'd had uh, issues with... Um, with essentially arm pump um, other injuries um, built up um, but also uh, I think a kind of motivation was a real was a real factor and uh, you know he made some comebacks um, 87 he came back with his own team uh, in Honda uh, but only managed to well basically score results of four races um, then he announced his retirement uh, at the end of 87 made another comeback in 89 whenever Jack Margastini was looking for a replacement for uh, Eddie Lawson who had just spectacularly and unexpectedly left Yamaha that didn't end well he was out of that team uh, before the end of the European season um, and then having gone back to um, having gone back to America uh, and done some racing there he came back to the 500cc class again in 93 and this time he was lean fit uh, but had two big crashes at the first two races of the year, got badly injured and uh, ended up missing most of that season as well. So, um, yeah, there were a few a few um, disappointing comebacks, I think you could say. But uh, I think it was Michael Scott, a uh, great MotoGP author, um, journalist, uh, who said that uh, there was just a kind of natural balance, even in itself, out because Freddie had uh, what he had done in his early years. Uh, you know, there had to be some compensation for that. Yeah, and that's the thing, Neil, because it was all condensed so much. Because even by the time Freddie retired at the end of his career, his final retirement, the fourth and final one in '95, uh, he was still only thirty-four years of uh, thirty-four years of age. He was still, you know, younger than some of the riders we see in MotoGP now. But he had already been burnt out for the best part of 10 years at that stage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think even when he was doing all of his winning in Grand Prix, he said to a load of different people at that point that um, he never saw himself racing uh, into his late 20s. Um, and I guess, you know, this is where you, you draw your parallels with Casey Stoner in terms of um, doing so much racing, being in such intense competition from such an early age. You know, you get to you get to a certain stage in your early twenties where you've got twenty years of 
intense competition behind you. And um, yeah, finding that motivation that's needed to stay at the absolute top of the sport um, becomes more difficult by the year. Um, and uh, for Freddie, it, it certainly seemed that way. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's it's easy to look at you know someone like Stoner and see a 27-year-old that retires from top-level competition, but you don't see whenever you're a kid and you're racing in the dirt track scene in, in Australia for Casey or when you move to Europe when you're 11, 12 years of age and you've spent 20 years working towards that goal. It's, you know, it's not as simple as the day you turned up at uh, the World Championship was the day the hard work started. And, you know, Freddie, as you said, another example just like that. But uh, regardless of anything else, he left this huge mark on the sport just from that time from 82 until 85, what he was able to achieve in those years to be able to win 27 Grand Prix, to finish on the podium half your Grand Prix career. Like he was that sensational star. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, um, uh, well, not that we need uh, any further signs of his talent. I mean, that was clear enough whenever he burst onto the scene. But even um, when he was back riding for Agostini's Yamaha team in 89, there were races at the start of that season when people watching were thinking, oh my God, I think Freddie might be coming back. Kel Carruthers was uh, his crew chief who had obviously spanned for uh, for Lawson and Kenny Roberts in the uh, the previous years. Um, and I think it was in Australia, that memorable first Australian Grand Prix at Phillip Island when you had four guys at the front. Uh, you had Gardner, Rainey, uh, Saron, McGee, all fighting for the win. And uh, Spencer actually got a pretty bad start. And um, yeah, it was coming through the field at one point. It was actually the fastest guy on the track. And I remember uh, reading an interview with Cal Crothers I did a couple of years ago where he was thinking, I think we've made a pretty inspired decision here, pulling this guy out of retirement. Um, but, you know, it just never really worked out after that. And um, yeah, sadly, it all kind of it really sizzled out, which wasn't really the, the, a way that was uh, befitting a man of his talents. Yeah, Neil, it's always good fun to be able to sit down and talk with Freddie about any of those early stages of his career, or in your case, when you were able to talk to him about his Grand Prix career and some of those key moments for him. So from myself, Steve English, from Neil Morrison, big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. And uh, we'll be trying to make sure that we're still able to get a Paddock Pass podcast out every week during the course of the lockdown. If you want to be able to support the podcast, we're still on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. You can still tweet us at Paddock Pass pod. And uh, we're still on Facebook with uh, the Paddock Pass podcast on facebook.com. And if you've got any questions or queries from anything that uh, you've seen in MotoGP over the years, World Superbike over the years, make sure just to get your questions in because we will be having a Q&A show in the near future as well. So for myself, Steve English, from Neil Morrison, big thank you to everyone for listening to today's Freddie Spencer special on the Paddock Pass podcast.